Claire Vickers, a marketing and communications professional, came into Falmouth University to speak to journalism students about her work, careers in communications, and what makes a successful candidate for a job in marketing. She started the talk with an explanation of how she got into marketing, her education, and a brief video of her work. I went to what was Manchester Polytechnic, which is now Manchester Metropolitan University, and I did my degree in history of design with history of art, so absolutely nothing to do with marketing, PR, journalism, English, writing, anything like that. Uh, I did that for three years. I then went on to do an MA uh, in visual culture at Middlesex, um, and that for me is probably where things really changed. Uh, I discovered a real love of everything to do with the arts and culture and realising that obviously it's got a psychological aspect to it, it's got a sociological aspect, economic, um, it's got uh, so many things around the visual arts that is more than just what you see either in 2D or 3D or in 4D. And I, I fell in love with what I feel was visual culture, particularly around the 20th and 21st century, and I'm particularly about graphic design, which was my passion and what I loved about how type could come out of a page and how a magazine could be formatted. So things like ID and the face at the time were hugely prevalent and very iconic um, and kind of magazines that we kind of like, you know, fawned over. But we also looked at people like David Carson, who was an, uh, an amazing sort of typographer and uh, magazine editor in the kind of surfing culture. So, you know, all sorts of different things that kind of made kind of you know, were, were not necessarily where I am now, but m has helped inform me to get to where I am. So I did that, and I lectured for a year uh, after my MA, because I didn't really know what I was doing. I thought, well, that's the course I'm meant to go on. I do my degree, first degree, I do an MA. I must go into education, and I'll start talking about what I'm doing. And I had a bit of an epiphany moment lecturing at Bath, and I was also... Um, doing maternity cover at UWE uh, in graphic design, kind of in their what's called complementary studies. So it's the kind of the history and theory side of it. And I kind of just realised, excuse my language, I was talking bollocks, <laughs> because I was just regurgitating the crap that I had just read. So much to my parents' kind of annoyance, after five years of higher education, I gave it all up and did what at the time, a word processing course, the RSA in WordPress, to become a secretary which I think my mother absolutely tore her hair out at. And I started temping in London um, as a personal assistant. And after about six months of doing that, I fell into my first marketing job. I was working for Forte Hotels. And I was PA to the brand director. And she just had a conversation with me one evening and said, what are you doing? And I was like, she said, I've seen your CV. I don't understand. And I said, well, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of thinking, where do I go? And she said, right, I've got a job as an executive, which is like an assistant position. We'll train, you know, just come in, do it. You can do it. I know you can do it. I was like, uh, OK, uh, I'm not sure whether I can, but I'll do it. And I got into loyalty marketing, which was, as I say, really just beginning to emerge as a practice in marketing. Hadn't done business, hadn't done marketing qualifications, but I started my ch uh, Chartered Institute of Marketing certificate with them. And... Still to this day, I did the diploma, still to this day, actually never completed those qualifications <laughs> because I found work took over trying to do night school and I, the jobs that I ended up carrying on, particularly when I went on to Harvey Nichols, um, I never had the time. I was up trying to go to the London School of Printing to do my diploma and actually what was happening in the real world in, in my workplace 
was giving me all the tools and skills I felt I needed. And also, I'd done an awful lot of education up until that point. And I questioned to myself, and again, it's totally my decision, that I didn't actually think the CIM was going to give me probably anything more. Claire continued the talk by talking about what using celebrities in marketing could be like, giving live examples from her work with Jamie Oliver and problems this caused with the press. Um, when you work with a celebrity, or work, either work with um, a celebrity br brand like Harvey Nichols, which is a, a br we would call that a celebrity brand because of what it is, or an actual person which has become a brand like Jamie Oliver, um, your ultimate goal is to be guardian and to be protector of that brand. Um, and what it mean, meant for me, because um, I was group head of marketing and PR for 15 Cornwall and, and also for the 15 in London, you know, was that I had to ensure on every level, whether it be uh, through anything that we did on social media, to anything that we did in the restaurant, to anything that the customer might experience and pick up, to any kind of level of communications, including internal communication, so staff training, you are always um, protecting that brand. And that is where it can become very tricky. Sometimes it is an, ab it's an absolute, you know, jewel in the crown to have somebody like Jamie to market. You know, I mean, God, he's, he doesn't need any training. He can just go out and do it and people will listen and people will look and you immediately get press and you immediately get PR and people engaging and wanting to see him. So, you know, from a point of view, you know, when you know you're flying Jamie into the county, oh my God, the press are going to be there. And unfortunately, there is a side of the press, as we know, that will jump on any small amount of detail and probably, you know, sadly, these people will do anything, you know, sometimes for money because they can know they can get it because it's the Jamie Oliver name, will sell their story or sell what they think is a story and then all of a sudden it's about how to control that story. I mean, a live example for, uh, that I can give you um, about kind of crisis comms is um, our chefs researched and researched and researched the best type of beef to put into this particular type of oven. And it transpired that the best beef was Longhorn, which is a special breed. You can't get Longhorn cattle in Cornwall. It's, um, it's a speciality breed. The nearest we could get it was Gloucester. Now, the press got onto this because they're like, well, you're 15 Cornwall. You promote Cornish, Cornish meat. There was a farmer up the road who decided to take umbrage and said, well, I can walk my cows actually through your restaurant and you're not prepared to take my, you know, my, my beef, my cows. Why, why are you getting them from, you know, up in Gloucestershire? And what you have to do in that situation is react really quickly. The, the, the obvious reaction is to put the phone down and go, oh, shit, let's go, let's keep quiet. Let's, let's hide from that. <laughs> Ooh, don't want don't to talk to the press about that. That could be tricky. But actually, that's the worst possible thing you can do um, from a PR point of view. You need to be able to pick up the phone and have a serious conversation with that journalist and say, you know what, the reason we've done this is because we could not buy the consistency and the quality of meat. You know, the next day we then had, or the next week we had, I think it was front cover of the Cornish Guardian, picture of, you know, Jamie, 15 coming, it's not pucker because they always think they should use the word pucker when it comes to Jamie. It's not pucker, not using local cows. And you just think, oh, great. But for me, I just look at that and think, lazy journalism, find a story. They, they just want to sell newspapers. Because having a picture of Jamie on the top front cover of the Cornish Guardian will sell a newspaper. What we have to then do is engage with that newspaper, work with them to try and overcome that, and get a positive piece back out there, which is what we did. Claire went on to talk about her current work and how to build a brand, explaining it through the example of her current work with the Cornish Food Store.
So my current role is uh, working, um, I actually kind of work for two companies. So I, I started working for a company which is owned by the same, same lady, Ruth Huxley, called Cornwall Food and Drink. Now Cornwall Food and Drink's been going for probably about five, six years. It is responsible for the Great Cornish Food Festival down on Lemon Quay in September. It's a three-day huge festival. She was given the opportunity to come in and open this store. Um, and we, within six months, we opened the store from a, literally a concrete shell. And we project managed it and, and launched it. And we've been running now for eight months. And it has a um, veg and bakery section. It has a deli. It has a 40-seater cafe. It has a butchery and a fishmonger. So interestingly, looking at that video, um, it reminded me of the amount of storytelling that goes on in my job. And I think that's one of the key things that... Um, if I can impart to you guys tonight, is about that there's always a story to be told. And that story sometimes isn't always loud and noisy and explicit. Sometimes that story is very subtle and very quiet and so very implicit. And it, therefore, it kind of has obviously sometimes hidden meaning. So for me, when you look at the visuals of the uh, Great Cornish Food Store, what we worked very, very hard on was the brand. And you've got the blue and white stripe. The blue and white stripe came from originally from the Great Cornish Food Festival and from the, from the books. But with that, we've pulled together, you know, the blues and whites around. It's a constant kind of stripe message. It's, within, it's implicit within the typography and the brand. It's implicit within the soft furnishings. We were very luck, lucky to be opening in June, so we could have even cornflowers that matched. No, all of this is intentional. There's nothing here that's just, oh, we fancy doing it. We fan well, I just like cornflowers. There's always intention because actually to really make a solid brand and to make a solid brand story and for people to really look at something and go, I get this. It's about having all these kind of constant reminders about what you do. And it's really true that people have to be reminded visually sometimes up to 15 times before they recognise something and remember it because it has that constant repeat behaviour of pushing it back into your mind and constantly <coughs> making you remember with the effects of Brexit starting to take place, Claire spoke about the future of Cornwall and Brexit from the point of view of a marketing professional. My feeling about Brexit is that um, it's here. Whether what my personal decision is about it is neither here nor there, but it's here and it's not going to change. And I think what we have to embrace is that we have always been a county of entrepreneurs We've always been a county of innovators. We've always been a county of people that have gone out from Cornwall and inspired other areas of the world to do other fantastic things. And I think Brexit potentially has an opportunity to open, yeah, new trade deals and new places of go to, to visit. And we just got to hold firm. This scaremongering and fearfulness that is often swept into the media, often swept up by, you know, the, you know I shouldn't say this, but the, the Daily Mail, the Daily Snail, which I call, you know, the, of the world. You know, we've got to just step back from this and try and listen to as many people and as many opinions as we can and have faith in who we are and what we have to offer. You know, we have a fantastic product. You know, we've got lots of fantastic products in, in Cornwall. We've got lots of fantastic businesses, lots of fantastic company, lots of fantastic people. We also know we have a product that tra translates across 
the borders. You know, we're, we're a national and international brand. You know, when we talked at the right at the very beginning about what is brand Cornwall, and we talk about pole dark, and we talk about pasties, and we talk about surfboards. You know, these are kind of I iconic things that actually go across all sorts of different barriers. They you know that people know it around the world. Claire expressed just how important video is now in the world of communications, outlining how it has overtaken the spoken word and it is the king when it comes to media these days. I'm afraid video is king at the moment in marketing. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> for the writers in all of us. <laughs> um, however, what, can what, what informs really good video is good planning and good writing to ensure that video is, is well executed. Yes, you, anyone can video with an iPhone and run around and doing crazy shit. And actually, when Jamie first started FoodTube, it was total car crash TV. <laughs> it was horrific because it was just done off the cuff. That's now become very scripted. And yes, it's perhaps not as authentic as maybe it was when it first started. But uh, actually, it's become, a, 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 in some ways, probably um, a more intelligent way of communicating to people. Video is, a, is, is, a, is, is that physical storytelling that, yes, you know, writing is that pure form that is beautiful and lovely. And when you see it in wonderful journals like Serial and, you know, other kind of beautiful kind of kinfolk or whatever it might be that, you're, that floats your boat, you know, beautiful photography, photography, that has a beautiful place in itself. And those are treasured items. But video is quick, it's simple, it translates to a much wider, greater audience, and therefore, from a commercial point of view, it's going to earn you big points back. So, yeah, video is growing still more and more and more, and more and more companies will have to engage with it. Well, it depends on the size of the company. You know, if you're you know, BMW or a big brand, you know, like, you know, like Nike or something like that, you're going to be getting the best of the best. You know, you're going to be getting Saatchi or you're going to be getting, you know, one of the big boys to kind of, you know, create this most beautiful executed video with fantastic music. And it's going to cost millions. However, I think what is more authentic and people um, of our, my generation, your generation and the generation probably you know, in the 30s, what you want to see is some sort of feeling of understanding, communication, you know, mutual understanding. Sometimes when something's so clean and slick and beautiful, yes, it's got this amazing fil filmography around it, um, and it's kind of its own art form in its sense, but actually you don't always have to do that. You can actually do something very, very simple and very, very... Uh, it's, it's again, it's that, it's that, it's that ability to storytell where you feel that you're the only person in the room they're telling that story to. She finished off the talk by answering a number of questions from the audience, all of which focused around the skills and work experience needed to break into the industry, describing it as hard work, but a lot of fun. Really good question. Um, I think the best kind of advice I can give from my experience is to never turn down any opportunity and to never think something's lower than what you are. You know, yes, you've come out with a degree, and yes, you've come... But if you're somebody says to you, you know what, I've got a job for a week where you're going to be mainly washing up coffee cups and serving coffee, but you're in an office that's in the middle of Soho, and actually, you know what, you never know who you might be meet in the while you're washing up that cup of coffee, go and do it. So, good question. Uh, for me... Um, Yes, I'd be looking perhaps at your degree, perhaps at your work experience, if there was any. 
but I think the most important thing would be to sort of have a look at actually what they had written in their opening statement. Um, you know, a C don't ever just send a CV in, just a cold CV. You know, write a short paragraph at the front, at the top of it, a couple of lines just about who you are, what your interests are, what you're passionate about, what you want to engage with, why you want this job. You know, go that extra mile. Sometimes it might feel really repetitive and draining and, you th and it's like the hundredth, you know, application you've done. But actually, the more you can put into it, the more that person like me is going to see, oh, actually, they've done something a little bit extra, a little bit different. Um, it doesn't need to be quirky or eye-catching or weird. It just needs to be, you know, feeling like I'm being talked to. Um, I suppose for me, um, it's, again, that, that slightly above and beyond what, what else have you done apart from turning up to your lectures and having written a dissertation? You know, uh, what have you done in the holidays? What have you done as a job? You know, have you, have you earned yourself any money? Or has mum and dad just paid for everything? Or have you just, do you just owe like 50,000 pounds to the bank and you know, somehow you're gonna pay that back? Even if it's, you know, in a bar or, um, you know, a pub or whatever it is, what did you do in that bar and the pub apart from being a waitress or serving pints? Did you get to help out with their social media? Did you kind of ask if you could, you know, take some photographs and write a blog piece? Did you, did you ask, you know, did you start writing a blog yourself or something about something? Be prepared to work very long hours. <laughs> Having been an account director for a PR agency for a very short time, I went from client side to agency for only eight months. I only managed it for eight months. Um, it's a funny thing because actually if you've always been client side, it's very hard to switch to agency. And, it, and they, they say vice versa, I, I don't know. Um, but having briefly touched being on the agency side, you know, it's a very different world to what I expected it to be. Um, I saw it from a client's point of view about kind of how things would be executed and so on. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's having confidence, I'm afraid. It's making sure that you aren't prepared, you know, don't feel worried about putting out that idea, even if you think it's a crap idea but also not being hurt when it's shot down in flames. You know, you can't be sensitive.